I'm in a series that I'm calling His Story, History, because all of the Bible is His story. It's the story of Jesus, really. And nowhere in the Bible do we see that clearer than what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. You haven't probably heard many sermons out of the book of Deuteronomy. But we want to look at what is, I believe, the greatest enigma of human life, of human nature. The greatest mystery of human nature. So you can turn in your Bibles there to Deuteronomy 29 or you can look there in your uh, worship folder and you can find it there. We're going to look together at Deuteronomy chapter 29 and chapter 30. Jacob Needleman is a secular philosopher and he wrote a book some time ago called Why Can't We Be Good? He says that therapists and um, social theorists and politicians are all writing books about how we ought to live. There only is one thing that they're forgetting. Everyone already knows how they ought to live. We just don't do it. And that, says Joseph Needleman, I mean Jacob Needleman, is the uh, greatest enigma of human life is why, why can't we do what we ourselves feel that we ought to do? This passage today speaks directly to that. What we're going to see is it's Moses at the end of his life and he's giving final instructions before he dies to the people of Israel. God has been giving them instructions. Moses is giving them instructions. And so we're getting the final instructions before they move into the promised land. So we'll start with Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It'll be up on the screen for you. Let me read it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. The secret things belong to God. There's a lot of things that God holds secret to himself. We can't understand him. We don't know why. We have a lot of whys that we want to ask God, and one day we will. My friend Jonathan Bean passed away a couple of nights ago. He was a great pastor. He helped us found a, a church in Mexico City when we were there as missionaries, and he was only 43 and died of brain cancer. And I have a big question for God. Why? Why Jonathan? Why? Now, he didn't have that question. He trusted God all the way, but... I, as his friend, look on and say, God, why? These are the secret things that God holds. We don't understand a lot of them. But there are some things that he's revealed to us. And that's in his word, in his Bible. He tells us about life, about the principles of living. He tells us about himself. And Moses is saying those things that he's revealed belong to us and to our children forever. If we will just walk in them. Someone said to me one time, you know, there's just too much about the Bible that I don't understand. It really bothers me. And I told him, I said, it's the things that I do understand that bother me more. Because I don't walk in them so much of the time. And, and I, I don't know why. This is going to tell us the answers to all of this. Then chapter 30, 
and verse 1. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. What we haven't seen, we don't have time to look at, but back in chapter 28, there are what scholars call the blessings and the curses. And it's God speaking over his people. And he's saying, I'm going to bless you if you walk in this. And there's going to be curses that come upon you if you don't. And it's been in the mind of many Old Testament scholars that this book of Deuteronomy couldn't have been written by one person because the blessings are so amazing but the curses are so ferocious about a third of the way into the curses you're going like okay God I get it I mean really it's like you're laying it on it, it, way over the top almost it feels like you know I get it I, I it's bad and then you get to the blessings and they're so amazing they'll just like blow you away and, and and so a lot of scholars have thought this must be written by um, different personalities one personality must have written the curses another the blessings I remember my Old Testament professor at Baylor he was saying he said I think that they you know that traditionally this has been seen to be written by Moses but I feel like it must have been written by two different people much later one right before the exile into Babylon, all the blessings, because they thought God was so great. After the exile into Babylon for the children of Israel, it was like, oh, the curses. You know, God, how could you treat us this way? And so he was really sour and, and discouraged and wrote the curses. But Jesus, in his speaking, says, seems to indicate that Moses wrote the whole thing. Except maybe right at the end when it talks about Moses' death. The whole first five books of the Bible, I believe, were written by Moses, just one person. So how does this fit in? How, how does this work? One scholar goes so far as to say that in Deuteronomy, this is not a coherent picture of God, a being that is that gracious and that deadly, that loving and that just. But I believe there's another explanation for the book of Deuteronomy and I think that what's really going on here is that this is the first time in the Bible in the biblical narrative that shows us that there's this incredible tension in the universe there's an incredible tension in our story as the human race there's a there's an incredible tension in your story, in your life. And the tension is brought about by sin. It was brought about when our first ancestors fell into sin. The tension between a merciful God that is holy and just and a sinful, guilty human race that he loves with all of his heart. A tension between the mercy and justice of God toward us as a fallen race. 
Pastor Timothy Keller has done a lot of research and I, I want to thank him because it's been invaluable to me on this difficult passage. Let me share with you some of the things that, that we find in this passage that, that just will really change your life if we can really grab hold of it. Our sin, in a sense, brings up a dilemma for God. If you could imagine that God would ever have a dilemma, being all-knowing, he probably doesn't. But in our minds, it looks like a dilemma. How can God be faithful to the fact that he is totally merciful and totally just? How can he be faithful to that? How can he do that? Remember, we studied back in Exodus Uh, the book of Exodus chapter 34 not long ago about Moses when Moses said God I want to see your glory and God said to him you can't see my face or you will die no human being can see the face of God in when you're just in this body and live to talk about it so he said what I'm going to do is you climb up on the mountain and get to the cleft of this little rock and I'll put you there and then I'm going to come by and declare my goodness before you and I will cover you with my hand as I come by so that you won't see the front of me but as I pass by and I declare my goodness I'll remove my hand and you can see the back of me because you couldn't see my face and lip and so Moses gets in the little cave in the in the side of the hill and God begins to come by and it says in Exodus 34 6 and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming This is his goodness, he's saying. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he's not done. He's still declaring his goodness, and he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. All of this is his goodness he says my goodness means I'm forgiving and gracious and my goodness means that I must punish every sin is that a contradiction no why must he punish every sin because he's that good he is so good think about a judge that looks the other way and never punishes or convicts he's not a good person is he if someone rapes and kills a child do you want a lenient judge who says well it's not really that big of a deal hopefully you can do better next time hopefully you can change your ways so I'm gonna let you off or a just and righteous judge there's no question is there see our problem is that we can't comprehend it how could there be a God that is that completely good because in our minds he could either be good in terms of his justice like I'll be patient with you for a little while but I'm just waiting I'm going to get you you're going to mess up and I'm going to get you that we can kind of understand or what most Americans feel about God that he's good in terms of his love and and he says I want you to obey but you know even if you don't in the end I'll accept you anyway kind of a codependent God you know you grew up in a codependent family maybe and so you you think that God is is like your mama or or your daddy that you know I'll work it out for you I'm gonna fix it 
don't worry, kind of live like you want, and, and, and it's going to work out in the end. That's not God. It feels like there are two gods here. That's why some have said, seems like there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Maybe, maybe there are two writers, but no. This is what makes the Bible great. The Bible, it just lets us sit in this tension. And it lets us sit in this tension for decades and even centuries. We feel this tension all through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament. His story already way back here, the tension. Because get this, this is so important this morning. It's only in this tension that the insanity of the cross makes any sense at all. It's only in this tension that the craziness, the insanity, the horror of the cross makes any sense. Three weeks ago, we, we watched it together, and I asked you to come up at the end of the service, and we watched that part of the Passion of the Christ where we just stood, and Jim Caviezel, the actor, portrayed Jesus being crucified, and it's just horrible. It's just difficult I watched your faces tears streaming down your eyes some of you looking away because you couldn't bear it others just closing their eyes as tight as they could and it's a horrible thing why would God do that why would he allow that to be done to his son so many people have said to me the cross makes absolutely no sense to me I don't I don't get it that's because we don't understand this tension so I want us to see a couple of truths from this chapter. You might want to write these down somewhere this morning. I want you to see number one, what this this chapter is teaching us is that we will all fail to live as we ought. We will all fail to live as we ought. In chapter 30, verse 1, he says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you are in exile. Moses is saying here, you're going to fail. You're going to experience these curses when you're in exile because you've failed. Now, I don't know about you, but I love motivational speakers, don't you? I mean, I love to go, and that's why, you know, some people, they just like, ah, oh, I just love motivational. And you get in there, and you get so fired up, and you go, I'm going to do so much better. My marriage is going to be great after this, right? And usually, you know, lasts about 10 or 15 minutes till you get in the car to go home and the kids are whining. But we love motivational speakers. M- Moses is not one of those. I- I- I'm looking at Moses and-, and here's his speech to them. You will all fail. I'm wasting my breath right now. You're not going to do this. I'm giving you the things to do and you guys aren't going to do it. You know what you ought to do and you are not going to do it. How's that for a motivational speech? It's like, right, you know? And like Needleman said, it's an enigma, but it's true of us as the human race. Author Becky Pippert was taking a psychology class at Harvard, and the professor was talking about a man there who, through counseling, came to realize how much of his life was dominated by a, a deep anger, a deep hatred toward his mother and he talked about that and how they had uncovered that and then he kind of moved on the professor moved on to another subject but 
Becky raised her hand and, and said, but prof, uh, that's great, but, but how do you help him? How did you, how did you help him? And, and he says, what do you mean? And she said, well, how did you help him to forgive? And the class began to discuss this a little bit, and finally the professor broke in, and he says, hey, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. That's not what psychology does. Psychology can point out the issues. It can help you to see the issues, but psychology can't help you do what you ought to do. Psychology doesn't change your heart. People ask me all the time, on judgment day, what about those people who've never heard the name of Jesus? What about... Those people, uh, you know, who grew up in a whole different religion and, and maybe Jesus' name was never even spoken. Well, the Bible talks about that in Romans chapter 2 and, and verse 15. Let me just read it to you, what Paul said. He said, even pagans show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscious consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts Sometimes accusing them and sometimes defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. As my gospel declares, he's saying people's secrets belong to the Lord. God can see all the way through to motivations. Francis Schaeffer really made an impact on my life when I heard what he said about this. What he said, he said, imagine that all of us walked around every day. We didn't realize it, but somewhere around our necks, we had a tiny little recorder. And it only recorded when we said to other people, you ought to, you ought to do this, or you ought to live this way. In other words, it only recorded your own moral standards, the moral standards that in your mind, you imposed on others. What you personally believed was right or wrong. On judgment day, maybe someone stands before God and God says, you never heard the name of Jesus. And God says, but I'm just and I'm fair and here is how I will judge you. And he takes that little recorder that you didn't know was there and he says, I'm going to judge you by your own Moral standards. Schaefer says, there isn't a person on the face of the earth that will be able to pass that test. Because we fail our own moral code. We fail our own moral standard. The biggest problem with the human race is not more books that tell us how to live. We know how we ought to live. We just don't. Do it. We need the power to do it. So where are we going to find that? The second truth. God has a plan to fix hearts. God has a plan to fix hearts. In verse 6 it says this. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Jeremiah calls this the new covenant with new hearts. So what is a, a circumcised 
heart. Well, first let's figure out what is a heart. We're so indoctrinated by our culture. We believe that feelings in America are how we gauge life, that feelings are the ultimate value. And so we think of the heart as the seat of emotions. You know, I've lost that loving feeling, so the marriage is over, right? Because it's all about feelings. I don't feel good about this. I don't feel that this, so is this right or is this wrong? Let me tell you what I feel about it, right? So we've got this indoctrination from our culture, our romance culture, that, that it's all about feelings. But in the Bible, that wasn't what they meant when they said heart. Heart in the Bible is the control center of the whole being. In Proverbs chapter 3, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So that shows us one thing that a heart does. It chooses something to trust in. That's what hearts do. They put their trust in something. In Genesis 6, it says that their hearts were inclined toward evil continually. That's another thing that hearts do. They incline toward something. They face toward something. They, they, they choose toward something. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, your heart is. So the heart is the seat of the things we most love, the things that we treasure. Tim Keller says this, and I like this, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. Let me read that to you again. What the heart most wants, the wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. What the heart is set upon affects your mind, your will, your emotions. So what is a circumcised heart? Circumcision was the outward symbol of a covenant between God and man. The outward sign that I'm coming into a covenant and will be obedient to God. A circumcised heart simply means that it's the inner love motivation to actually do this, to obey and to walk with God. In fact, it says it in that verse, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts, the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart. It's kind of the difference between like a political marriage or a marriage for financial reasons and the marriage that Laura and I have. You know, in one, you kind of go through the emotions of Uh, the motions of being married you know you kind of do the things that you're supposed to do but when Lyra and I first got married man if there was something I could do that I knew would please her I was quick to try to do it and it might have been something that my parents have been trying to get me to do all those early years of my life you know and I just wouldn't obey I just wouldn't do it something like Mark please don't pick your nose in the car in public right? I know none of you would ever do that, except I've seen a few of you. But, uh, but I knew, you know, if I looked at Laura and I could see that it displeased her, I would quit. I mean, I quit that. I stopped doing that for like a whole month when we first got married. And why? You could say I was being submissive to her will. It wasn't even necessarily a spoken thing, but, and I guess that I was, but it just felt like love to me. And here's what we need to understand. A circumcised heart is when what you ought to do 
and what you want to do come together and are the same thing. When what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same thing. How can this happen? Some of you went to church as little kids and, you know, I remember as a little kid in church, you know, like first grade and you see the word circumcision and say, teacher, what is circumcision? And no one will ever tell you. And finally, someone tells you, uh, you know, about fifth or sixth grade, maybe middle school and you go, what? Why would God ask you to do that? What? I mean, why couldn't he just like ask you for a tattoo or something? I don't get it. It's gross and bloody and way intimate. And I think that's God's point. It's symbolic. It's showing the penalty of sin. Sin is gross and bloody and intimate. The curse of the covenant is to be cut off. To be cut off from God and life and light and circumcision is an outward symbol of that. In fact, it's interesting because it, it, it talks about Christ's crucifixion as a circumcision. On the, cro- on the cross, Christ was cut off from God. Colossians 2.11, let me just read it. It says, also in Christ you had a different kind of circumcision. A circumcision not done by hands. It was through Christ's circumcision. That is his death that you were made free from the power of your sinful self. It's only in this tension that the grossness of the cross makes any sense. As we watch that up here on the big screen, could barely, could barely take it. God, it's too much. Why would God allow that to be done to his son? But only as Jesus became sin and hell and it was cut off from God, was the justice of a holy God satisfied. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. God so loved you, he took your punishment. Don't miss this. The goodness of God demanded that justice had to be served. The mercy of God suffered it in our place the goodness of God demanded that justice must be served the mercy of God suffered it in our place that's the cross you see God doesn't just wink at sin he's too good for that he he doesn't just turn a blind eye or he doesn't just he's not codependent on us and say hey it'll all work out sin has to be punished And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the goodness of God. All of us. And so he had to break through time and space. And he had to die on that tree. And on that cross, he became that. He took the punishment. See, I still can't totally understand it. And in our minds, we still can't totally grasp it. We're still going like, but but." it's because we can't see, we can't feel the tension We don't understand the depths of sin and and how awful and gross it is to a holy God. And how his justice, his goodness in his justice demands that it must be met. And yet 
He loved us so much that he wanted relationship with us. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I, I, I don't know why that he wants that. The book of Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy? It's the same joy that a woman has when she's in labor, giving birth. There's nothing joyful about labor, is there, ladies? I mean, I remember when my wife was in labor with David, 18 hours. And my sweet wife, I mean, at one point I was trying to help her. We'd done Lamaze together and, you know, and, and I was like trying to breathe for her, but I have no rhythm, so I was way off. And finally, you know, I would watch the little machine and go, I said, I think you're having a contraction. And she'd go, oh, right, Sherlock. How'd you figure that out, you know? And finally, at one point, my sweet, beautiful wife said, sit down and shut up. <laughs> and I remember the second child, Sarah, I was just sitting there because I'd been told the first time to sit down and shut up. And she looked over at me about halfway through labor and said, are you just going to sit there? <laughs> and then with Ashley, when she was born, I was kind of like, I don't know <laughs> what to do. Just yell at me. Just get it over with. (laughs) There's no joy in that. But man, when she held that little baby in her arms and she looked down. It was worth every bit of it. I I, I remember the look in her face. And, And I remember thinking after David, 18 hours in labor and all that, I thought, man, that just about killed me. But it wasn't, but, you know, a few months, a year maybe after, she goes, you want to have another baby? I'm like, are you kidding? That about killed me. Don't you remember? 18 hours in labor. No, I don't. Look at this baby. It was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. It was like giving birth. He was taking our punishment so that we could have relationship with this just and holy God. Oh, the depths of his love for us. Moses says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven. So you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. So that you may obey it. It took the cross to satisfy this tension. It's so interesting because maybe you've read Romans 10, 5 before. But it's exactly what Moses was saying. But Paul just changed it a little bit. Listen. The righteousness that is by faith, Paul says, says this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. And in your heart. Does that sound familiar? That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Only in receiving what Christ did for us. Is adequate. To change the human heart. Not psychology. Not motivational speaking. 
And let me just close with this. The blessings and the curses, they're not parallel. If you get the curses, the ultimate curse, hell, we will get them because we deserve them. But if you get the blessings, there's no way you deserve that. There's no way. Hell is deserved. Heaven is not. The blessings are given as a gift from a merciful God. They're from the work of Christ on the cross. And the result as we step into that and we take what he did on the cross and we receive it for ourselves and say, I want that. I'll step into that. Jesus, I believe. I want to walk in this. I want to step into this. Then something happens as God begins to change our heart so that what we ought to do and what we want to do become one. Moses closes, he says, see I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. Would you close your eyes with me? Do you know how much he loves you? Have you ever seen that? He loves you so much. That's the cross. That was for you. What we watched in that, that was for you. Don't go around and say, I'm going to try to see if my good can outweigh my bad. You can't even live up to your own moral code. You have to step into the gift of a merciful God. His justice. His justice demands punishment. And his mercy meant that he suffered it for us. He found a way to take our place. And that resolves the tension. The cross resolves the tension. Step into the cross. Let me just ask you a real clear question with your eyes closed. It's what you ought to do and what you want to do. Is that the same thing? Or is it becoming more and more the same thing? Because if it's not, I mean, just be honest with yourself. It's just you and God, not me. If it's not, then you probably aren't a believer yet. I still fall on my face. I still mess up. But more and more in my life, it's becoming that. That what I want to do and what I ought to do, what I ought to do and what I want to do, they're coming together more and more. As I walk with God and I've stepped into this journey with Him, it changes everything. And I long for that for you. Maybe you're here and that's happening for you. Would you just... Say a little thank you to God right now. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. It's beyond words. Maybe you just need to step into that right now. And there's probably hundreds of us here that do. Maybe you thought you had it figured out. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. You have to step into this. Make him Lord. That's what it says. You say, you be boss you be lord i believe that you died and rose again for me i believe that 
And I'm stepping into what you did right now. And you'll begin to see the change, life change. Some of you have been through many hours of counseling and it doesn't work. Can't work. Can show you what's wrong, but it can't give you the power to do it. Only God's cross can. 